Father God, we just want to thank you for the chance to be here this morning, Lord. We thank you for a beautiful day outside. We thank you for a beautiful church family that's here today. Lord, we thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ who we can uh, come together with and pray with and just laugh with, encourage one another and bless one another. God, we are so thankful for this church. And Lord, we just want to pray a special blessing over our fathers today, Lord. And, um, God, we know that you put fathers in our life to reflect you. And we know that uh, each one of us does that imperfectly. But Lord, even those who leave us wanting, uh, at least we know what it is we're craving from our Heavenly Father. And so we thank you for the fathers that you've blessed us with. We thank you for uh, being our eternal Heavenly Father our perfect Father, the one who loves us perfectly. Lord, that, that psalm this morning, Psalm 118, that says that you are for us. What an amazing, amazing thing to consider that the God of all, the creator of everything, Lord, the God of angels, the God of Eve, is for us. That you love us, that you seek out time with us. And Lord, I just pray uh, this morning, Lord, I pray a blessing on our fathers, but I pray that you would just help us to meditate on that thought as well today, that you are our perfect heavenly father. God, we just pray for our time together as we look into your word and uh, continue to move through the book of Nehemiah. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move, that you would open our eyes to see you and our ears to hear your voice. Bless our time, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going through a series called Rebuild, based on the book of Nehemiah. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 3. And I have to tell you, I struggled this week. Um, I struggled with what to do with chapter 3. Uh, you remember a couple weeks ago, I asked my wife to read Ezra chapter 4, and all the names and places and the struggle. Well, I'm going to read Nehemiah chapter 3 this morning. And I'm going to do two things. I'm going to tell you that if you want to read along, feel free to laugh at me. If you don't even want to try to read along, there's going to be a map up, a slide with a map that'll have the gates around the city that are listed. So you can just watch the picture and laugh at me. But either way, you're going to be laughing at me. <laughs> I, I really, I went into chapter three, my studies, uh, there's, there's people listed, there are gates listed, there are sections of the wall listed that, that Nehemiah is trying to rebuild. And I thought, surely, if I do the research and I really look into where these gates are and what they were used for and who these people were, there was going to be all kinds of theological insight that just burst all around me. And it turns out that's just not the case. Most of the gates, right, you'll see some of the names are like my favorite. This will be your favorite too. The Dung Gate. Okay. Guess what they did at the Dung Gate? They took the dung out. Yeah, so... Most of what we know about the gates is just from the name. Uh, there are a few gates that still exist, but most of them are gone, and, and the only information we have about them are that they're named in places like this in Nehemiah chapter 3. So, uh, I'm going to read the whole chapter. I was torn on whether or not to even try. Uh, again, it is full of very difficult names that I'm going to mispronounce, and I'm going to stumble over my words and trip over my lips, and you are going to laugh at me, and that's okay, but we're going to just move along. And what I want us to grasp this morning are two things. Uh, I think the reason that Nehemiah included this chapter is to detail the work that was completed, 
right? They, they, we know that Nehemiah's heart was breaking over the wall of Jerusalem being torn down and burned. We know his heart was breaking. He prayed, he fasted, and he sought after the Lord to give him opportunity to rebuild. Right In chapter 2, we saw that the king granted him that opportunity, so God was with him. And we know that that vision that he had was from God, and it was based on God's promises. God promised them a land, that they would be his people in his promised land. And so he knew that his desire wasn't just his, that it was God's desire. And so he pursued that. The vision became fulfilling God's promise or taking part in that fulfillment. And so we're going to see kind of how that played out. Um, but it's just a detail of, of the fact that the work was completed and who was involved in completing it. The second thing uh, that I think Nehemiah was trying to do, uh, there many commentators believe that the third chapter of Nehemiah was added later. So the book of Nehemiah is very narrative, right? We've seen that. Like he's, he's the one telling the story of what's going on. And chapter 3 reads differently. So they believe that Nehemiah went back and added chapter 3 after he had written out the narrative. And I think that part of the reason was to, to declare that uh, the end of chapter 2, where he says the God of heaven will give us success. I think chapter 3 is intended to, to flesh out that success. This is the success that we saw under God's sovereignty. So again, I'm going to read the chapter. Uh, Frank, if you can throw that slide up. Uh, if you look in the upper right, the sheep gate, that's where we're starting. And then it, it kind of details from there to the left, counterclockwise. Is that counterclockwise? Yeah, I was thinking digital clock. Um, so you can just follow the picture, kind of see where the gates are, and, and laugh at me as I stumble through this. But here we go. You ready? Eliashib, the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built, the ne built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hesaniah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, made repairs, and next to him, Zadok, son of Beana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisor. The Jeshaniah gate, which up there is called the Old Gate, was repaired by Joadah, son of Hesiah, and Mishalam, son of Besodia. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by the men from Gibeon and Mizpah. Melatiah of Gibeon and Jadon of Merinoth, places under the authority of the governors of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Herodhiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephaiah, son of Hur, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jedaiah, son of Haramath, made repairs opposite his house. And Hattush, son of Hashabeneah, made repairs next to him. Malkajah, son of Haram, and Hashab, son of Pahath Moab, 
repaired another section of the Tower of the Ovens. Shalom, son of Helohesh, ruler of half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The valley gate was repaired by Hanan and the residents of Zanaoa. They built it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. They also repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. The dung gate was repaired by Malkajah, son of Rebak, or excuse me, Rechab, caught that backwards, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim. He rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalon, son of Pol Hosa, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam by the king's garden, as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of the half-district of Bethzur, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and the house of the heroes. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites, under Rahum, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of the half-district of Keilah, carried out repairs for his district. Next to him, the repairs were made by their fellow Levites under Binui, son of Henadad, the ruler of the other half-district of Kila. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section, from a point facing the ascent to the armory as far as the angle of the wall. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section, from the angle to the entrance of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Next to him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the entrance of Eliashib's house to the end of it. The repairs next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs in front of their house, and next to them, Azariah, son of Maaseiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. Next to him, Binuai, son of Henadad, repaired another section from Azariah's house to the angle and the corner. And Palal, son of Uzziah, worked, worked opposite the angle and the tower, projecting from the, op from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Next to him, Pedaiah, son of Parash, and the temple servants living on the hill of Ophel made repairs up to a point opposite the water gate, toward the east and the projecting tower. Next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired another section, from the great projecting tower to the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Imer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemei, son of Shechaniah, the guard at the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. <laughs> Next to them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Next to him, Malkajai, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants, opposite the inspection gate, and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. <laughs> Oof, I think I hurt myself. So... <laughs> So as I was saying, uh, I did a, a lot of research, in, or I tried to do a lot of research into each gate and what the meaning behind the, the gates were and what they're used for and looking for kind of significance there. 
And there really wasn't much other than the fact that they were named for what they were used for, typically. So uh, the fish gate, can you guess what was typically brought into the fish gate? Fish. Yes, see, you are... The, yeah. <laughs> Everyone but Mike is a theological giant right now. Uh, the dung gate was where the garbage and dung was brought out. Uh, the valley gate led to a valley. Um, inspection gate, they believe, was where uh, the, the king's troops were brought out for their military inspections. So again, the name just kind of tells what the purpose of the gate was. Um, I found one article about excavating the walls, and they were looking for, I was looking for like dimensions of what the walls would have looked like. And they, were, they found these old walls and they were excavating them. And it was, the one thing that stuck out at me was they found buried dogs. And that was an indicator that was the Persian period of time because it was a Persian uh, tradition or, or action to bury their dogs. So as they're going down the different layers of wall, because as cities are kind of trashed and rebuilt, they just kind of leave the rubble. They build on top of it. So there's multiple layers from multiple time periods. And they found these buried dogs, and they realized that was the Persian period. So that was a section of uh, the, the wall from when Nehemiah was rebuilding. Other than that, there's not much super noteworthy about the people or the gates themselves. But one thing that did jump out at me right away uh, is this. In 3.1, it says, Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. So that's the first gate that's named uh, the Sheep Gate, and it was actually rebuilt by the high priest, which is significant. For the, the high priest held a high position, right? He was an honored man. He had a powerful position. He was a religious authority, and yet he was out there doing the labor to rebuild this gate. And then at the very end, in chapter 3, verse 20, it says, between the room uh, above the corner and the Sheep Gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. So, it's significant that the sheep gate begins the list and ends the list. And that's partly because they made a big circle. But I think it's also uh, poignant that the sheep gate was noted twice, and it was noted as the only gate that was dedicated. And the reason is the sheep gate was believed to be the gate where they would bring the sheeps and lamb in for the sacrifice. So that little square up there, I don't know if you can see, is the temple area. So when you were going to offer your sacrifice at the temple, you would bring your sheep or your lamb through the sheep gate and go to the temple, and then they would do the sacrifices for covering of your sins. The sheep gate, again, is the only gate that was dedicated. And the high priest himself worked on that gate. And so what struck me was this. What is Nehemiah trying to achieve? What is he trying to achieve? In our heads, in our minds, we think, well, he wants to rebuild the wall. But I think the heart of it is, is found in that sheep gate being the first gate built and the only gate that's dedicated. Because Nehemiah's task was to rebuild the wall. But his goal was to reestablish relationship with God. His goal was to reestablish worship of God and to bring the presence of God back to that city. So yes, he was trying to rebuild the wall. That was his task. But his goal was to 
preserve that place that was known to be where the presence of God rests. And so uh, when they talk about the sheep gate, they talk about the dedication of the sheep gate. Their top priority was to reestablish the worship of God in the city. And the high priest himself took part in that. If you remember uh, chapter 1, we talked about Nehemiah's confession. Saying he's also confessing the shortcomings of the nation of Israel. He's confessing the fact that uh, God warned them time and time again that the exile would come if the people didn't turn their hearts back to God. And in that confession, if you remember, Nehemiah quoted part of the Shema. right? And that Shema is that prayer that the Jews pray in the morning and at night, uh, declaring their hearts to God. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And the long version talks about, say this prayer when you rise and when you go to bed. Share this prayer with your children. Teach them. Write it on the gates of your, of your gates, the posts of your gates. Put it on the door frames of your home. Basically, he's saying everything in your life, set it up so that it reminds you to follow God, to worship God. Their act of rebuilding the wall was an outward expression of their intention to rebuild that relationship with God that Nehemiah confessed they had turned from. And that job of rebuilding began with an act of worship. They rebuilt the gate that would help them to worship God, to bring their sacrifices to God. And they began that work with an act of worship. They dedicated it. It's the only gate they had that service for. So the big picture uh, content is that the people were trying to get back to God, to get back into right relationship with God. Now, as we zero in on the details, again, I was, I was hoping to find all this cool content with the gates and the people. Um, but basically, all Nehemiah is doing is detailing the work that was done. The work was largely done in sections, and those sections were typically taken up by the people that lived or worked right nearby. So there's mention of people living across from the wall, or uh, the, the, there's part, I forget, the Tower of the Ovens, I think it was called. Uh, they believe the Tower of the Ovens was either uh, bakers or people who made pottery, and they were like kilns. But the people who were rebuilding had a vested interest in that because that was their livelihood. So people kind of lived near a section, they took on that section, and they rebuilt that section. The work was completed by all different types of people. So the first person we hear mentioned is the high priest. That is a big deal. Imagine like the fence at the White House gets knocked over, and so President Biden comes out with a shovel and a pickaxe, right? And he's going to start digging. And Wouldn't it be kind of bizarre to see? Right? Well, here's the high priest who is the head of the Jewish religion. And, and Jewish religion was their identity. And yet this man humbled himself and came out and took part in rebuilding that wall. Average people took part. There's a lot of names of people. Uh, the, the Jewish people trace their genealogies, like, religiously, if you will. It was very important to them, right, their family lineage. And one of my favorites, I forget the dude's name, but it was like the fourth son of this guy. Like, what a strange way to say it. Um, but these were just, you know, average people that were taking part. There are regional rulers, governors, and, and 
satraps and things that were taking part in this, right? So they had they weren't like kings, but they had some power, they had some sway, and they were taking part. A dad and his daughters took part. Priests took part, and servants of the temple took part. Merchants and tradesmen. So it specifically lists goldsmiths, and it names perfume makers. And I did notice that the perfume makers seemed to avoid the Dungate area. They were working kind of north of there, but they were working, right? Tradesmen were working. And what unified such a diverse group of people to take on that repair of the wall? And I think the answer to that is found in the Sheep Gate being the first repair. The answer is found in worshiping God and dedicating that gate. They were worshiping the Lord for answering his prayer. They were seeking out the presence of God. If you remember, John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, declared of Jesus, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He recognized Jesus was that perfect sacrifice for mankind. He was the Lamb of God without fault, without defect, that was going to be killed on our behalf. And his blood would be our eternal covering for our sin, to reconcile us to God. And so as we consider the sheep gate, where we would bring our sacrifices to the presence of God, here comes Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, to sacrifice himself for us so we can forever be in God's presence. The big picture theme that emerged as I was studying for Nehemiah chapter 3, as I was looking for so much more information than was actually there, the thing I found was unity. There was unity among a very diverse group of people. And that unity was found in the worship of God. So let's us remember our roots. What are our roots as believers in Christ? In Ephesians 2, Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So that's our starting point. Dead. We are all unified by the fact that we were dead. <laughs> in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
our starting point, people, is dead. Can you think of a more vulnerable state to be in than dead? Imagine I'm dead. What exactly can I do to help myself? Nothing. And Paul says that is how we all started. When we realize that we are alive simply because Christ brought us back to life, then we can experience unity like we've never experienced before. When we recognize that none of us did anything to help ourselves out of that state of death, except that Jesus reached down and lifted us up and brought life to us. When we keep the main thing the main thing, right, which is Jesus, when we keep Jesus in front of us, we can experience unity. Paul writes in Galatians 3, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Keep the main thing the main thing. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So what united the Jews to rebuild? What were they trying to accomplish? It was a shared desire to be in the presence of God. They recognized that they had not upheld the Shema. They have not kept God in the center of their lives. They turned, they walked away. And as a nation, they became spiritually dead. And yet, God sparked life back in them. And they turned themselves back to God. They had a shared desire to be in the presence of God. And therefore, you had the high priest and, and the daughters of some guy working next to goldsmiths and, and perfume people with people who lived across the street all coming together with the shared desire to come in the presence of God. So what should unite us here this morning? The shared desire to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. Last week I talked a lot about us as a church as we seek to rebuild our own church and our own ministry to, to coming up with a vision that's bigger than anything we can accomplish. And last week I pointed out that our average attendance this year so far has been 24. And in Wilkes-Barre proper, there are about 41,000 people. That is a vision bigger than something we can accomplish. And yet, Rebecca was sharing this morning, I believe that that is the vision God is putting before us. We need God to do it. We talked last week about working towards kingdom growth in Wilkes-Barre. We would love our church to grow. Yes, we want, we want to have thriving ministries. We want to have children and teenagers and middle-aged people and older people. We want to have the full spectrum. We want to have men and women. We want to have different races, right? But we want that to be part of the kingdom of God in our city, coming to life. Uh, I also mentioned last week a stirring that I've seen, a stirring of God among the people of Wilkes-Barre. 
I've seen a stirring uh, in the pastures of Wilkes-Barre. This past week, uh, I had two meetings with pastors. One was uh, a handful of local CMA pastors, uh, and one was just local Wilkes-Barre pastors. And both times, both times I got together with them, there's just a sense of anticipation that God is moving. I don't know how to say it more than that or more eloquently other than God is moving. And I still don't know what that's going to look like for us exactly, but I am so excited. (laughs) I'm so excited to see God moving, to see God stirring the hearts of his people, and just the anticipation of what that's going to mean. Catherine's here this morning. Catherine is from uh, Keystone Mission. She's a co-worker. She's awesome. (laughs) I love working at Keystone Mission because it is the hands and feet of Christ in our city. You know, we are working for the people that society is overlooking. They're stepping over. Uh, I was just talking to a, a police officer this past week, and he was talking about how the administration, when they drive by, they see a blight. They don't want that visible. Right? But we see them as people with dignity and, and issues that need to be worked through, but we are going to love them, love them, love them and do our best to to share God's love with them so they can sense their value, they can sense that they're loved, they can sense the desire to start to make those changes that they need to make. That's that's the vision God has for this city. As I was contemplating the unity that the Jews experienced in rebuilding, all those people coming together, John chapter 17 popped in my mind. It's a prayer that Jesus prayed near the end of his uh, time on earth. And as he's praying, he says, my prayer is not for them alone, referring to his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. (laughs) That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. One commentator wrote, The unity of the Father and the Son models the unity to be experienced by their people in whom they dwell. Who here understands the Trinity? You do? All right, you're up. (laughs) The Shema. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. But there's also the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three separate people, same God. Do we really understand it? We can understand it on some level. We can say things that make us think we understand it, but really, we don't understand the Trinity, right? And here Jesus is saying that the unity that he experiences with the Father is the unity that his church should experience because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dwell within us. And when we keep Jesus, when we keep the main thing, the main thing, we here will experience unity like we've never experienced before. 
the body of Christ will come alive in this church. The gifts that you have received, especially from the Spirit, will come alive and you'll be empowered to use those in the building of the kingdom. And not only that, that'll make Sunday pretty cool, but then on Monday when we're outside and we're interacting with people from the other churches in, in the area, like Restored and Church on the Square and Real Hope Church, that same unity that exists here, if we keep the main thing the main thing, that same unity will be found in them. And what does Jesus say? Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as, I, as you have loved me. When we come together, when we start with worshiping Jesus, when we keep Jesus central to everything, we will experience unity, but we will experience kingdom unity. And this city will take notice. Then it's not 24 people trying to reach 41,000. What did we say last week? Then it's like 1,600 trying to reach 41,000. Which seems very disproportionate. But if 16,000 believers come together united by their faith in Christ, we're going to get stuff done. The city will take notice. And the kingdom of God will grow. The Shema, the short version of the Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one. They experience unity. And Jesus said, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That unity that, that we can experience here when we keep Christ central means that new believers will feel just as welcome and loved as more, more mature believers. That black, white, Hispanic, Asian will mean nothing here because we're united by our love of Christ. Men and women will be on equal footing because of our love for Christ. Young and old, rich and poor. We all have an equal opportunity to be brought back to life by Jesus Christ. The body of Christ that Paul talks about in terms of ministry, each one receiving gifts from the Spirit that are unique to us that are empowered by the Holy Spirit. This morning, I think it might have been Catherine commented that we have wonderful greeters. It was Camille and Mackenzie out front. Right? And then they helped us take offering. They are doing the work of Christ, just the same as me up here. That's unity. Ephesians 5, Paul writes, This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. 
always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying here what Nehemiah experienced in Jerusalem. Keep worship first. Seek after the presence of Christ. Then we will experience unity in these walls. We'll experience unity with other believers outside these walls. And the city will take notice. Be transformed by Jesus. If you've put your faith in Jesus, if you consider yourself a Christian, a believer, a follower, I want to make it clear that this is not an invitation to become part of God's family. It's a reminder that you are already part of God's family. You are adopted as sons and daughters. On Father's Day, we have a perfect Heavenly Father today. It's not something you have to achieve. It's not something you have to work for. It's already happened. You are a child of God. And if you've not put your faith in Jesus, then there's no better time than now. Because I'm telling you, God is on the move in this city. We're going to close in prayer. Did you read your note? Is it okay? Then we're going to sing, uh, I Speak Jesus. Because as we were singing it this morning, that's the heart of what I think God wants our church to accomplish, is to keep Jesus central. Right? The Shema is about keeping God central to everything in your life. If we make Jesus first and last in our life and make everything revolve around him, he is going to transform us from the inside out. He will renew our minds. We will become more like him each and every day. He said, be holy as I am holy. He's going to set us apart and help us to grow more like Christ. And when we do that, that transformation, that, that joy that comes from that interaction with Christ will overflow as we interact with others. And that's when we begin to make that impact. Let's just close with a word of prayer and then we'll make that song our, our final prayer. Lord God, we are excited to see you moving in this city of Wilkes-Barre this city of about 41,000 people. And God, it, it feels overwhelming to think about a church trying to reach so many people who need to know about Jesus. And yet by aligning ourselves with such a big vision, we have to recognize that it cannot be our efforts. It has to be you moving in the city. And God, we want to be a part of that. Help us to make Jesus the center of our lives. Help us to wake up with the name of Jesus on our lips. To break the chains that keep us from you, Lord. The chains of addiction, the chains of hurt, the chains of heartache, the chains of loss, the chains of struggle. God, break those chains and bring us back to life. Lord, would you work in our lives in such a way that it just bubbles out of us, the joy, the peace, the patience, 
that the work of Christ is evident in us just because we've been with you. Lord, we know that you are moving in this city. We know that you're raising up your kingdom here in Wilkesbury. Help us to be a part of that, Lord. Help us to be obedient to that. God, we love you so much. We confess to you that we do not keep you the center of our lives the way we should. Would you help us to grow more like Christ in that way each day? We thank you. We love you. We pray this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.